<sighs> hey, welcome to my first um podcast. Um so I'm supposed to be reading an article or a story or something that will make you fall asleep because I make it boring as possible. Well, I done a little nitpicking around into the internet and found an actual article on the website theatlantic.com um literally called a long story so i'll just read it from start to finish and hopefully my soothing voice will put your ass to sleep <clears throat> i have some good news Next month, The Atlantic will once again send fiction home to our subscribers and a special supplement that will accompany our May issue. On the newsstand, the supplement will be bound into the May magazine. The short story has been integral to The Atlantic since our first issue in 1857, in which we published four stories, including The Morning Veil by Harriet Beecher Stowe. But... As long-time generously loyal readers know, for the past five years, we have published fiction once a year in a special newsstand issue, rather than in any of our 10 subscriber issues, during what has been widely noted to be a challenging, re-harrowing business environment for publishing, this has been a necessary compromise. But for none of us has been particularly happy with it. We have been searching for ways to once again place great fiction in front of all of our readers. With our fiction issue last year, we began a partnership with Luminato, the Toronto Festival of Arts and Creativity, which shares our love of literature. Building on the success of that first outing, which included participation, my bad, by some of our editors and authors in the festival. We have jointly decided this year to raise our ambition by creating this supplement, which will include along the half of dozen short stories, a powerful essay on writing and loss by Joyce Carol Oates. We think, we hope, we are seeing renewed interest in the short story. Last fall, we started a digital fiction series publishing in the Amazon Kindle 2 short stories a month by authors like Christopher Buckley, Curtis Sittenfeld, and Paul Therox. All told, The Atlantic is now publishing more fiction than it has since the mid-1970s. But I should admit, these fiction initiatives are experimental, provisional, part of our larger adventure though the seismically shifting landscape of letters if our hardworking developers have pulled it off by the time you read this note our website theatlantic.com will relaunch a new design and superior system for finding the subjects you're interested in and discovering new ideas you didn't know we were looking for we've also released two apps for the iphone so far and are about to release a third, more and much more improved one. We are experimenting busily, in other words, with any new technology that emerges in the extraordinarily fertile era. If it looks like we're making things up as we go along, 
the reason is that we are to each platform as they are now called in the trade we are tailoring the atlantic work that can fit its best trying to help you make sense of the world to keep you informed and entertained though whatever medium you find most congenial for our print magazine and our e-reader editions we're continuing to devote months of reporting and writing to create pieces like joshua grant's profile and the issue of treasury secretary timothy neither and robert d kaplan's assessment of the war in afghanistan for the website each day we produce dozens of posts analyzing breaking developments in politics business culture and technology and other subjects some of them long time preoccupations in the atlantic other fairly new to all of us as i write in our site i can see posts popping up by james fallows about twitter and andrew sullivan about the future of gays in the military and tanashi coates about the moral court courage of civil war general george henry thomas what matters to us and all the work that we do on whatever platform may present itself is the quality and consequence of an idea and the clarity and power of his expression we believe and we believe that you believe that the many of the profiling means for communicating big ideas one of the most effective and therefore most enduring is fiction james bennett is the former editor-in-chief and co-president of the atlantic well while we still have a little bit of time left i guess we can click on one more article under here let's see here we are living in a field state we're reason we're here i'll click on this we are living in a failed state i wonder what state this is talking about we're living in a failed state the coronavirus didn't break america it revealed what it has already broken so this is probably talking about these states as in the United States. I don't think it's just talking about one. Yeah, this is probably talking about the entire country. Um, damn, this is actually a really good length article. So I'll go ahead and read this and then we'll wrap it up. Because what I just read wasn't long enough to put you to sleep, I believe. Alrighty. It is 1.20 in the morning, so definitely, since I gotta be up at 5, I'll finish this article, and then definitely head to bed. <laughs> Alright, here we go. When the virus came here, it found a country with serious underlying conditions, and it exploited them ruthlessly. Chronic ills, a corrupt political class, a sclerical bureaucracy, bur bureaucracy, Bureaucracy, I think bureau, bureaucrat, you know what I'm saying, heartless economy, 
I'm really tired. I'm sorry. A divided and distracted public had gone untreated for years. I'm just going to pause right here. Um, A lot of my English seems bad. Just these words. I'm, it doesn't matter if I'm saying them wrong. Because I'm just trying to put you to sleep. We'll just go with it. Just go with it. A corrupt political class, a heartless economy, okay, this is where I left off, had gone untreated for years. We had learned to live uncomfortably with the symptoms. It took the scale and intimacy of a pandemic to expose their severity, to shock Americans with the recognition that we are in the high-risk category. The crisis demanded a response that was a swift, rational, and collective the United States reacted instead like Pakistan, like a country with shoddy infrastructure and a dysfunctional government whose leaders were too corrupt or stupid to head off mass suffering. I hope I'm not going to offend anyone with this. <laughs> the administration squandered to irre irretrievable months to repair from the president came willful blindness, scapegoating boasts and lies from his mouthpieces, conspiracy theories, miracle cures. A few senators and corporate executives acted quickly, not to prevent the coming disaster, but to profit from it. When a government doctor tried to warn the public of the danger, the White House took the mic and politicized the message. Yeah, I'm probably going to offend some people with this, but just so you know, I'm not into politics. None of this is my opinion. I'm just reading an article to put you to sleep. Just need to get that out there before I get tracked down and airstriked. <sighs> Every morning in the endless month of March, Americans woke up to find themselves citizens of a failed state with no national plan, no coherent instructions at all. Families, schools, and offices were left to decide on their own whether to shut down and take shelter. When test kits, masks, gowns, and ventilators were found to be desperately short supply, governors pleaded for them from the White House, which stalled and called on public enterprise, no, private enterprise, not public, which couldn't deliver. States and cities were forced into bidding wars that left them Pray to price gouging and corporate profiting. <sighs> Civilians took out their sewing machines to try to keep ill-equipped hospital workers healthy with the patients alive. Russia, Taiwan, and United States sent humanitarian aid to the world's richest power, a beggar nation in utter chaos. Yaska Monk, no testing, no treatment, no herd immunity, no easy way out. Donald Trump saw this as a crisis almost entirely in personal and political terms. Fearing for its re-election, he declared the coronavirus pandemic a war and himself a wartime president. But the leader he brings to mind is Marshal Felipe, the French general who in 1940 signed an armistice with Germany after a row of French defenses. 
then formed a pro-Nazi Vichy regime like Patain or Patain. I don't know how to say his name. Trump collaborated with the invader and abandoned his country to a prolonged disaster. And like France in 1940, America in 2020 stunned itself with a collapse larger and deeper than one miserable leader. Some future autopsy of the pandemic might be called strange defeat after the historian and resistance fighter Mark Bloch contemporaneous study of the fall of France despite countless examples around the U.S. of individual courage and sacrifice. Failure is national and it should force a question that most Americans have never had to ask. Do we trust our leaders and one another enough to summon a collective response to a mortal threat? Are we still capable of self-government? This is the third major crisis of the short 21st century. The first on September 11, 2001, came when Americans were still living mentally in the previous century. In the memory of depression, World War, Cold War remained strong. On that day, people in the rural heartland did not see New York as an alien stew of immigrants and liberals that deserved its fate. But as a great American city that had taken a hit from the whole country, for the whole country, firefighters from Indiana drove 800 miles to help the rescue effort at Ground Zero. Our civic reflex was to mourn and mobilize together. Um, oh shit. Partisan politics and terrible policies, especially the Iraqi war erased the sense of national unity and fed a bitterness towards the political class that never really faded. The second crisis in 2008 intensified it. At the top, the financial crash could almost be considered a success. Congress passed a bipartisan bailout bill that saved the financial system. Outgoing Bush administration officials cooperated with Incoming Obama administration officials, the experts at the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department used monetary, monetary, and fiscal official policy to prevent a second Great Depression. Leading bankers were shamed but not prosecuted. Most of them kept their fortunes and some their jobs. Before long, they were back in business. A Wall Street trader told me that a financial crisis had been. A speed bump. We are nowhere near done with this article. Jesus Christ. Okay. But I'm determined to put you guys to sleep. Okay, where was I? Where was I? Where was I? Mm, okay, here we are. All the lasting pain was felt in the middle and at the bottom. The Americans who had taken the debt and lost their jobs, homes, and retirement savings, many of them never recovered. And young people who came in the age of the Great Recession were doomed to be poorer and their parents. In inequality, the fundamental and relentless force in American life since the late 1970s grew worse. This second crisis drove a profound wedge between Americans, between the upper and lower classes, Republicans and Democrats, metropolitan and royal, royal people.
Oh, the naive born and immigrants, ordinary Americans and their leaders, social bonds have been undergoing undergrowing strain for several decades, and now they began to tear. Tear, tear. The reforms of the Obama years, important as they were in healthcare, financial regulation, green energy, had only palliative effects. The long recovery over the past decade enriched corporations and investors, lulled professionals, and left the working class further behind. The lasting effect of the slump was to increase polarization and discredit authority, especially governments. Both parties were slow to grasp how much credibility they lost. The coming politics was populist. Its harbinger wasn't Barack Obama, but Sarah Pollan, the absurdly unready vice presidential candidate who scorned expertise and revealed in celebrity was Don she was Donald Trump she was Donald Trump's John the Baptist. Trump came to power at the as the repudiation of the Republican establishment, but the conservative politician class and the new leader soon reached an understanding. Whatever the differences on issues like trade and immigration, they shared a basic goal to strip mine public assets for the benefit of pri private interests, Republican politicians and donors who wanted government to do as little as possible for the common good could live happily with a regime that barely knew how to govern at all. And they made themselves Trump's footmen, like a one boy throwing matches in a parched field. Trump began to em emulate what was left of national civic life. He never even pretended to be president of the whole country, but pitied us against one another along lines of race, sex, religion, citizenship, education, region, and every day of his presidency, political party. His main tool of governance was to lie. A third of the country locked itself in half mirrors that believed to be reality. A third drove itself mad with the effort to hold on to the idea of knowable truth. And a third gave up even trying. Trump acquired a federal government crippled by years of right-wing ideology, assault, politicization, by both parties and steady defunding. He set about finishing off the job and destroying the professional civil service. He drove out some of the most talented and experienced career officials, left essential positions unfilled, and installed loyalists as commiss commissars over the cowed, cowed, cowed survivors with one purpose to serve his own interest his major legislative accomplishment was one of the largest tax cuts in history sent hundreds of billions of dollars to corporations and the rich the beneficiaries beneficiaries flocked to patronize his resorts and lined his reflection pockets if lying was 
his means for using power corruption was his end. This is the American landscape that lay upon the virus and prosperous cities, a class of globally connected desk workers dependent on a class of precarious and invisible service workers and the countryside decaying communities in revolt against the modern world on social media, mutual hatred and endless vituperation among different camps and the economy. Even with full employment, a large and growing gap between triumphant capital and beleaguered, fuck that word, labor in Washington and empty government led by a con man and his intellectually bankrupt party around the country, a mood of cynical exhaustion with no vision of a shared identity or future. God, speaking of exhaustion, I'm struggling over here <laughs> let's see here how much do i got left oh my god i got so much i don't know if i can finish this i'm gonna do it i'll do it for you guys if the pandemic really is a kind of war it's the first to be fought on the soil of a century and a half invasion and occupation occupation expose a society's fault lines exaggerating what goes unnoticed or accepted in peacetime clarifying essential truths raising the smell of buried rot the virus should have united americans against common threat with different leadership it might have instead even as it spread from blue to red areas attitudes broke down along familiar partisan lines the virus also should have been a greater level leveler you don't have to be in the military or in depth to be a target you just have to be human but from the start its effects have been skewed from the inequalities that we've tolerated for so long when tests of the virus were almost impossible to find, the wealthy and connected, the model and reality TV host Heidi Klum, and the entire roster of Brooklyn Nets, the president's conservative allies were somehow able to get tested, despite many showing no symptoms. The smattering of individual results did nothing to protect public health. Meanwhile, ordinary people with fevers and chills had to wait in long and possibly infectious lines only to be turned away because they weren't actually suffocating. An internet joke proposed that the only way to find out whether you had the virus was to sneeze in a rich person's face. When Trump was asked about his blatant unfairness, he expressed disapproval but added, perhaps that's been the story of life. Most Americans hardly register this kind of special privilege in normal times but in the first weeks of the pandemic it sparked outrage as if during a general mobilization the rich had been allowed to buy their way out of the military service and hoard gas masks as the con contagion has as the contagion has spread its victims have been likely to be poor black and brown people the gross and inequality of our health care system is evident in the sight of refrigerated trucks lined up outside public hospitals 
we now know two categories of work, essential and non-essential, who have the essential workers turned out to be. Most people in low-paying jobs that require their physical presence and put their health directly at risk. Warehouse workers, shelf stalkers, Instacart shoppers, delivery drivers, municipal employees, hospital staffers, home health aside, no, I mean, home health aides, long-haul truckers, doctors and nurses and pandemic combat heroes, but the supermarket cashier with her bottle of sanitizer, sanitizer and the UPS driver with latex gloves are, are the supply logistics troops who keep the frontline forces intact in a smartphone economy that hides whole classes of human beings. We're learning where our food and goods come from, who keeps us alive, and order of organic baby orgula on Amazon Fresh is cheap and arrives overnight in part because the people who grow it, sort it, pack it, deliver it have to keep working while sick. For most service workers, sick leave sick leave turns out to be an impossible luxury. It's worth asking if we would accept a higher price and lower delivery so that they could stay home. The pandemic has also clarified the meaning of non-essential workers. One example is Kelly Loafer, Loafler, Loafler, I think, the Republican junior senator from Georgia whose sole qualification in the empty seat that she was given in January is her immense wealth less than three weeks into the job after a dire private briefing about the virus she got even richer from selling off of stocks then she accused democrats of exaggerating the danger and gave her constitutes false assurances assurances that may well have gotten them killed Loeffler's impulses in public service are those of a dangerous parasite, a body political that would place someone like this in high office is well advanced in decay. And... purest embodiment of the political nihilism is not Trump himself, but the Southern Law and Senior Advisor Jared Kushner. In his short lifetime, Kushner has been fraudulently promoted as both a bureaucrat and populist. He was born into a moneyed real estate family. The month Ronald Reagan entered the Oval Office in 1981, princeling of the second Gilded Age. Despite Jared's mediocre academic record, he was admitted to Harvard after his father, Charles, pledged a $2.5 million donation to the university. Father helped his son with $10 million in loans for a start in the family business. Then Jared continued his elite education at the law and business schools in New York University, where his father had contributed, contributed $3 million. Jared repaid his father's support with fierce loyalty when Charles was sentenced to two years in federal prison in 2005 for trying to resolve a family legal quarrel by entrapping his sister's husband with a prostitute and videotaping the encounter. 
Jared Kushner failed as a skyscraper owner and newspaper publisher. But he'd always found someone to rescue him and his self-confidence only grew. An American oligarch's Andrea Bernstein describes how he adopted the outlook of a risk-taking entrepreneur, a distributor of the new economy. Under the influence of his mentor, Rupert Murdoch, he found ways to fuse the financial and political and journalistic pursuits. He made conflicts of interest his business model. And that's it. Um, it's almost 2 o'clock. And i got to be up in three hours. This is great. I hope that I helped you fall asleep. And we're just now reaching about 30 minutes into this podcast. I feel like they made pretty good time. So, um, if you want to contact me at my number to have me read a specific article or a story, a bedtime story or something like that, you can reach me at 864-386-7775. That's 864 864- Three eight six seven 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 five. Just shoot me a text or shoot me the link of the article or whatnot that you want me to read, and I'll read it.